You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 38. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. And uh, if you find yourself without a Bible this morning, there should be a black Bible somewhere underneath the seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us to you. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 38. And when you've gotten there, go ahead and stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. Again, Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 38. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning. It is good to see each and every one of you. Uh, I am thankful Uh, to be here, being able to preach this morning. My name is Ty Gastet. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church. And as Scott said, we're going to be continuing our series through the book of Mark. And so this morning we have a lot of text to cover. Uh, Normally for my, uh, the the biblicist inside of me does not like to cover this amount of text uh, in this short amount of time. Uh, The truth is that we're about to go through four different passages. Each one of them could be their their own hour long sermon. And so I'm going to do the best I can to cover what I can. But if you would, this morning, join me in zooming out to 30,000-foot view. And really, I, I think Christ has something for us here in this text that weaves its way through each and every one of these passages. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then we will move forward. If you would, bow your heads. Father God, we come before you and... We rest all of our worries, all of our fears, all of our anxieties before you. God, there's no other place that we can go this morning than to your word, the only perfect thing that we have in our hands. And so, God, we just pray that our eyes would be open to see and our ears would be open to hear and our minds would be able to understand 
just how good of a God you are. And so, God, as we learn what it means to be a healthy disciple and what it means to follow a king, God, we pray that you would convict the areas that need uh, correction and you would encourage the areas that we have been faithful. And most importantly, by the power of your spirit, that you would incline our hearts to you. God, if there's any part of us that is resistant, my deep and abiding prayer is that you would override it the most loving thing you could do is to override any resistance against you and to make way for your perfect presence in our lives. So God, we love you and we praise you. It's in your wonderful name we pray. Everyone said, amen. So for about uh, six or seven years of my life, I swam competitively. Uh, I I wasn't always the, the fastest person. I w- couldn't always jump the highest, wasn't always the strongest. I felt like I was a little bit above average in those, but could never hang with like the elites. And so it was like perpetually frustrating for me because I, I felt like I could, I could beat like 70%, but that last 30% were always just beating the crap out of me. So, uh, so, but swimming, though, came very easy. It didn't come easy the first year. Uh, swimming's difficult even by itself. But after that, things started to flow very simply. Uh, and swimming is, uh, it's a difficult sport. Uh, it's comprised of four different strokes. You have freestyle, breaststroke, backstroke, and butterfly. And it's difficult on its own because at the end of the day, you're doing a full body workout and you're holding your breath to do it in an environment that you're not made to be in. So it's, it's a very difficult sport on its own, but butterfly is the hardest of all the strokes because you're using the entirety of your body all at one single time, and it requires incredible technique. It's really taxing, and you might be able to get the undulation down that gets you to move efficiently, but in order to fully master it, which is when you use the double kick to be able to run with the elites, that's when you actually get it. But that's a hard thing to get because... It, it takes years of practice to get it right. But I remember the first time that it clicked. Because up until that moment, I could never get, quite get the undulation of butterfly right. I just looked like a, a worm on a sidewalk trying to make its way across. It was really weird. It always felt awkward. But I remembered when it clicked. I was 11 years old. Uh, it was at the warm-up of a Saturday swim meet that it finally clicked. And what perfect timing. Because I remember being in that warm-up. And figuring out how to get that double kick going felt like Thanos getting the stone in his gauntlet. I was like, oh my gosh, you guys are in trouble. You guys are in trouble. Because I was, uh, because until you get that double kick right, you're always in the slowest heats. And uh, sure enough, I was. And so as, as an 11-year-old, I was averaging about 58 seconds per 50 meters in butterfly, which was not fast at all. It's slow. Uh, you can almost tread water that fast. Uh, but I remember when I figured it out that this is about to go down. And I remember being in the second heat. So not, not, I wasn't quite the slowest in the first heat, but I was the second one. And I remember jumping off and finding the ry- rhythm immediately and that race went from 58 seconds to 38 seconds in a single meet, which is incredible. And I didn't ever think that I would be able to do something like that. But I remember thinking after I finished, I remember thinking, this is what Coach has been talking about. She's been saying it this whole year and last year, and I could never get it. But now I've gotten it, and not just gotten it mentally and understand it, but I have experienced it. And while that's a juvenile example, it is a parallel to something that we're going to see in the text where 
The disciples have been living their life with Christ up until this moment, hearing about him, walking with him, seeing the things that he's doing, but it's just not clicking. It's just not operating the way it should operate. They don't see him for what they should, but there becomes this incredible moment of clarity, this moment of clarity where they finally see God for who he was meant to be. And I believe that this moment is a instructive moment for us on what it means to be a healthy disciple. And so what we're going to do is we're going to jump into the text. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26 says this. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they, are, they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent them to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. See, at face value, this miracle by itself is incredible. It's awesome. Could you imagine being blind your entire life, not being able to see anything but a black wall in front of you, and then all of a sudden, not only can you see shapes, but you can see clearly, not just outlines, which is what he saw at first, but now you see everything for what it is, every line, every shade, every color, every movement, every eyeball, every food that you eat, now you can see all of it clearly. It's an incredible moment, and it's nothing to snub your nose at at all. I, I mean, I couldn't imagine living the kind of life that he lived just being blind. I couldn't imagine. I mean, I, I have a difficult time waking up in the middle of the night and turning the light on the bathroom and then going to the bathroom, turning the light off and making the six feet from the bathroom to my bed at night without stubbing my toes. That's just six feet. I couldn't imagine living my entire life that way. That's what this man felt and the amount of relief that he would have experienced would have been incredible. However, when we understand this part of our story, we realize that this is not just a miracle of a man's sight being restored, but there's a multiple multitude of miracles and a multitude of purposes happening in this very moment. In context, this miracle is less about a man physically gaining sight and more about the disciples spiritually gaining theirs. So what's happened up until this point is that the disciples have experienced Jesus healing people, casting out demons, feeding thousands of people with minimal food. And even though the disciples had seen all of these things, they still didn't get it. And even on the text that, uh, that Eric preached on last week, it ends with, do you not understand? Do you not understand what's going on in front of you? I mean, Jesus is looking at them after all these miracles have happened, and he's saying, why are you still talking about loaves? The loaves themselves was not the point. It was the man that multiplied the loaves. It was the man that fed the thousands. You're still talking about the gift, but you haven't addressed the fact that there's a giver behind it. And so he lists off this, these litany of questions to them where he's saying, do you not have eyes? Why don't you see? Do you not have ears? Why don't you hear? Do you not understand what I'm talking about? And the truth is, is that no, they didn't. They didn't understand. And then it ends on that question and jumps right into this passage where this blind man is seeing. And the miracle that we see in this passage serves as a, tip, as a triple entendre of purposes. 
on, on the one hand, yes, it's, it's a blind man having his sight restored. But on the other hand, it's seeing the, the transgression from the Old Testament way of seeing things to the New, Test, New Testament clarity. But see, before Christ, they could only look towards what God had in store for them. They could only lean on the prophecies. They could only lean on what men of God led them to see. In, in the case of this blind man, it's like they, all, they only saw in shapes and forms and lines. That's it. They couldn't see clearly. And then Christ comes onto the scene. And now we're able to see in color. Now we're able to see every line. Now we're able to see what all of that other stuff was meant for. All of those other prophecies and moments and events were lined up to be. So on, on one hand, it's the blind man receiving sight. On the second hand, it's to see the transgression from Old Testament thought to New Testament clarity. And then the third thing that we see is dis- the disciples seeing Christ for who he is. The truth is that Jesus did not struggle to give sight to this man. It's not like Jesus just didn't power up that morning. Jesus was fully able to heal him instantly if he wanted to. And the fact that he didn't heal him instantly is to be instructive only, not only for the disciples, but also for us. It was meant to show us what the foundation of a true believer or a true disciple looks like. That the basis for a healthy disciple is going from blind to sight, going from darkness to light, from death to life. And it doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it, as we'll see in a moment, but it does mean that you see the world differently. That you see the world through the eyes of a king. You see the world through the filter of a God. That is what it meant to be. The trajectory of your life takes a different course. If you are a true believer that sees clearly, clearly now, there is no way your life could be the same. Could you imagine that you're blind for all of your life and then all of a sudden you see, but you keep doing blind things? I just can't imagine that. I would imagine the trajectory of someone's life that now can see would be entirely different. The amount of things that that person could do. The amount of experiences that person could have. And so for the believer, when you come to know Jesus and you experience the grace and mercy of a king and you see things for what they are, there's no way, there's no way that you can keep living the way that you used to live. So it begs the question, if it doesn't mean that I'm perfect, it just means that my life has a new trajectory and I'm a new creation, then what does it mean to be a healthy disciple that loves Christ for the king that he is? What do I need to know in order to walk in obedience? I think we see that in the next passage. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And he told them, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter, of course, answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Caesarea Philippi would have been a really unlikely place to have this conversation, to be honest. The truth is, is that Caesarea Philippi was one of the outer regions that was filled with paganism and idolatry and some massive hostility towards the Hebrew faith, so not really a good time to have coffee talk about who Jesus thinks he is. But Jesus, 
decides to have this conversation. And up until now, Jesus has been revealed to the disciples and everyone around um, in accurate ways that describe him for who he is. The disciples have just missed it. They haven't paid attention. But in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, uh, the author of Mark calls Jesus Christ the Son of God. So he's introduced that way. God the Father in 1, verse 11, you are my beloved Son. I take delight in you. In, in three different times, in Mark 1, 3, and 5, even the demons get it right for who Jesus is. In 1, 24, they describe him as the Holy One of God. In 3, 11, you are the Son of God. And in 5, 7, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. At the end of this, uh, and even at the end of this gospel, which we'll get to at the end of the series, the Roman satyrian says, this man really was God's son. And so throughout the book of Mark, you see these accurate ways in describing him. And even though these things are true, Jesus asks what the word on the street is about him. And they get a mixed bag of answers. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're one of the prophets. And the truth is, is that this is a flattering crowd to be in. If you're, if, if you're us, it's a flattering crowd. It's a great crowd. John the Baptist was the greatest man to ever live, according to Jesus. Elijah was a, a, a prophet that never died. Taken up by chariots of fire. What an incredible moment that would have been, like Hunger Games. It's awesome. And so these were incredible. This is this a great crowd to be a part in, but... The truth is, is as positive as those analogies and comparisons may be, they might as well be Genghis Khan. They might as well be Hitler. They might as well be Napoleon in terms of comparison. Because the truth is, is that if, it's, if you're not describing Christ for who he is, you might as well be whatever, you, whatever it is. It's not him. There, there's two categories when you're describing God. There's God himself and everything else. Spurgeon talked about what it means to be close and how close doesn't count and can have dangerous outcomes. He talks about discernment this way. He says, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. That's true discernment. True discernment means, no, that doesn't quite hit the way it needs to hit. No, that doesn't quite accurately describe the God of the universe. Because even being just a little bit off, and this is what we learned in two passages ago. Actually, no, it was last week. A little, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, leavens the whole bread. Just a little bit, even just a little bit, you're off. Even just a little bit, you're wrong. Being a Christian means serving the king who's outlined to us in the Bible. He's not merely a good moral teacher. He's not a merely a wise counselor. He's not merely... A great man, he's Lord. And anything short of Lord misses it. All of those things accurately describe aspects of who Christ is, but they don't encompass him. He is first and foremost God of the universe, Lord and King. That is his rightful title. So what is the first step we need to be a healthy disciple? This leads me to point number one. Healthy disciples serve the King. And we serve the king best by knowing and revering who he actually is. We don't treat him how the other people want to treat him. We're not going to extol him as a great teacher merely or talk about him as a wise counselor or a good moral man. 
That's not what we're going to do because he's not just those things. He is Lord of the universe and he directs our paths. He's a part of the creation story. He's existed forever and always will. He is divine in the flesh, God amongst us, creator of all things, king of the universe. He is who the prophets refer to, who Elijah looked to, and who John the Baptist preached about. That is his title. There's no other title fit for him. If we give our life to any other title in our life, everything related to our faith will be off. Matthew Henry, a theologian in the 1600s, said this. This question about who Jesus is, this is a question we should, every one of us, be frequently putting to ourselves. Who do we say? What kind of one do we say that the Lord Jesus is? Is he precious to us? Is he in our eyes the chief of 10,000? Is he the beloved of our souls? It is well or ill with us according to how our thoughts are right or wrong concerning Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is a massive statement. That it is well with us or it is ill with us concerning our answer to that question. And not, and not just niceties, answering it the way a good Christian should, but believing in our heart that Christ is Lord. Do we believe that? Because we have to start there. It doesn't matter uh, anything else that we talk about. If you don't believe that Christ is Lord, then anything else I'm going to say after this point doesn't matter. You start there. You start with belief that Christ is Lord, he's the king, and I go nowhere else. And that is what Peter was saying. That is what Peter was saying when he said that you are, you are the Christ and more, better translated, you're the Messiah. It's the first time that Jesus has called it directly. You're the Messiah, the, the, the God that's gonna rescue us, the king that's gonna rescue us, the one Isaiah, the one that he talks about, that's you. He describes him that way here. That is the title that he deserves and that we must lean into. Let's keep reading. Mark. Chapter 8, verses 31 through 33 says this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of a man. One of the most important words in this passage that we have seen is the word must. It's not, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man could suffer many things. The Son of Man might suffer many things if you intervene, Peter. No, the Son of Man must suffer many things. The Son of Man must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and and the scribes and must be killed and he must rise again after three days. That word must is vital. It is necessary. It is what the scriptures have promised. It's why he came. This is sin's payment demands. This is what sin's payment demands and we cannot provide it. Christ is the only one that can. This is where the law of God and the love of God meet together in this word, must die and must rise. This is where we see both law and love meet. This is where judgment and grace meet. 
If we rob the word must of its meaning at all, you empty the, gr- the gospel and the cross of its glory. And that is what Peter was trying to do, even if he didn't know it. The truth is, is that God often prescribes ways of doing things that are hard and difficult to endure, but they're, they're always clear. They're always clear the direction that he's leading. For us, God is never flippant in his sovereignty and decision-making. And God's sovereignty is a weighty topic to cover and discuss, but it's something that we also must believe in. The truth is, is that God will oftentimes lead us down paths that we are not ready for. And most of the time, if we're honest, anytime something is difficult in our life, it's because we weren't ready for it. Whether that's losing a loved one, whether that's losing a job, whether that's your marriage being on the rocks or whether that's you wrestling through not being able to have children. And I could go on and on and on and on, but the truth is is that God often throws things in our path that we are not ready for or feel equipped to understand. And in the same way that I said we have to start with belief, we have to trust that God is in control. It's easy to think that when things are going well, that's when, everyth- that's when God's in control. We get this illusion of control that at the end of the day, when my life is going great, I'm all good. I'm in control. And that when things are bad, then now I'm out of control. Things are out of control. They're chaotic. It's just an illusion, friends. Even when things are bad, God is still in control. And the truth is, is that when things were good, God was still in control. You never were. Don't buy into the illusion. We don't, what we don't want to do is theologically go down a path where something has now surprised God. Or that something is happening outside of God's control. Just because we can't understand it, see it, or know it. And the truth is, is that understanding has rarely ever provided the kind of peace and joy that you want rarely does that happen. I mean, legitimately, for the things that are difficult, if you found out the why, does it make it better? You still have to go through it. I was talking about this last week at a church that I was offered to preach at, and we were saying how so many times people will, you hear the stories, they go to just get a regular checkup, they end up getting some kind of EKG or x-ray or something just as a normal means of seeing how they're doing, and they find out something sinister is, le- is lurking underneath their body, whether it be a mass, cancer, disease, or something. And then all of a sudden, their quality of life tanks off a cliff like somebody flipped a switch. Now, this is purely anecdotal. I don't have any science behind this, but that seems to me that the ominous knowledge of understanding something sometimes can bring about the hardest trials. It can make it more difficult. It can make the suffering worse. So instead of asking God, why? Why are you doing this? Instead, we should trust that he's a good God and that any amount of suffering that comes our way, he's in control. And because he's in control, I don't have to worry. He's existed for all of eternity. I've existed for 34 years. Why would I worry? Why would I worry? He knows all, and everything's in his control. 
Sometimes God's sovereignty is difficult to deal with and difficult to wrestle with, but it's always clear. And the truth is, is that there is a level of loyalty that needs to be present in the life of the believer. And this leads me to point number two. If healthy disciples must serve the king, healthy disciples must also trust the king. George Whitfield said it this way. We must not lean to our own understanding, being wise in our own eyes and prudent in our own sight, but we must submit our short-sighted reason to the light of divine revelation. And as we must deny ourselves and our understanding, so we must deny, or as it might be more properly rendered, renounce our wills, that is, we must make our own wills no principle of action, but whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we must do all, not merely to please ourselves, but to the glory of God. If we are honest, this level of trust that God calls us to, not listening to our own wills, but listening to his, will be a challenge. Oftentimes we will sit in our proverbial pious recliner testifying to this trust in the Lord, but when the rubber meets the road or the suffering enters our life, this trust escapes our vernacular. This level of trust at the end of the day is fueled by a deep sense of humility. You see, Peter wanted a Jesus who fits his agenda. It's why he starts rebuking the God of the universe. Despite calling him the Messiah, he feels that he needs to rebuke him and correct him. He thinks he knows the kind of Messiah Jesus needs to be and attempts to reshape and redefine him to fit his conception. And the truth is, is that we are often guilty of doing the same thing. We want a Jesus that we can control and we want to conjure up a Jesus that fits our image and our likeness. But no, we must learn to affirm and accept the things of God and not the things of man. We must learn to trust what God has in store for us instead of trying to control everything. We must learn to trust that God is not just in control, but he's also good. The truth is, is that we may not fully understand this trust. We may not fully understand this plan. And even more honest, it may not even be easy or safe but the truth is is that it will be best. In fact, even better, it'll be perfect. God's will will be perfect, regardless of what he leads you down. You may not be able to see the outcome or the other side of the tunnel, but there is goodness in it and through it and at the end of it. Let's keep reading. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 38 says this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to him, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus didn't just stop at the announcement of his propitiation for believers. He didn't just stop at his death and resurrection. That good news is meant to be water to our souls, but it's not the place that it rests. It doesn't merely pull up inside of us, but instead he gives a, a commission to us. That that water doesn't just pull inside of us, but it flows outward. 
he bids us to follow him. On April 17, 1998, Linda McCartney, wife of Paul McCartney of the Beatles, died. Newsweek uh, concluded its article on her death by saying, the McCartneys had all the money in the world, enough to afford their privacy, enough to give them beautiful views, but all the money in the world wasn't enough to keep her alive. And as hardcore of a statement that is, it points to what Christ is talking about here. There's nothing that we can provide that will afford our soul. The point isn't that wealth is bad. The point is that a life given over to the way of the king is significantly better. A life that is built around comforts, efficiency, and niceties will never provide the nourishment of the soul that you and I long for. It doesn't matter how neat we make everything. At the end of the day, it has to be faithful. It has to be obedient. It doesn't matter how neat and efficient it is. It doesn't matter if it's comfortable. It has to be obedient. It has to be loyal. It has to be faithful. The only way that there is, is the way of the king, is the way of Christ. And what is that way? It leads me to point number three. If healthy disciples serve the king and trust the king, point number three, how is that trust enacted? Healthy disciples die for the king. And this isn't some kind of bid to tell you that you have to sell everything that you own. But it is a bid, a clear bid to die as the believer, to die to self. That your life is not meant to make your life neat, your life comfortable, and your life prosperous and good. Instead, it's meant to glorify a good God. A good guy who has provided, who has provided for you and made a way for eternity. Your home is not here. Your home is further beyond the skies. And your job is to talk and proclaim that kingdom. And so Christ dying for you on your behalf is not merely a description of what he's done. It's also a prescription for how you ought to live. Your life for others. Your life for him. Your life for others. It's why Christ is give, gives the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and then love your neighbor as yourself. It's a dual commandment. If you love God with everything, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Christ gave his life for you, and so you, in return, respond by your life to him and your life for others. That is the call of the gospel. That is the bid to die. That is the bid to be faithful. So what does it mean to be a healthy disciple? It means dying to ourselves and not being ashamed of it. As I heard one pastor put it, what's the opposite of being ashamed? Being proud. Not prideful, but proud. Not ashamed of Christ, but proud you get to wear the banner. Proud you can be called a child of God. Proud that you are a Christian. And in today's age, just like the one that Christ was talking about, in this sinful and adulterous age, is what he describes in his, and it's even more applicable now for ours. What a time to wear that banner. What a time to die to self. What a time to not live for your own life, to build up your own storehouses and your own kingdom, but instead to let it all fall to the wayside so that way you can pursue a greater kingdom, a better one, a kingdom that's worth fighting for. 
that will never fade, never fall, and the gates will never be stormed down. And inside of that kingdom is a king that will never fail. You see, if we place ourselves there, that kingdom is not worth dying for because we will fall very quickly. And anything we put in the center of that kingdom will fall very quickly. It's not trustworthy, and it's not worthy of our service. Christ is. And so I have questions for you as we close out this sermon. My questions would be, where do you, where do you find yourself struggling along these lines of these, these points? Do you struggle on what it means to serve the king? Is Christ Lord in your life? If you're a believer, have you allowed him to reign over all of your decision-making? Have you allowed him to factor into every single thing that you do, whether it be from job, family, church, or whatever it may be? If you're not a believer, what is stopping you right now from trusting in Christ as Lord? You're here this morning. You're here, which means you're not here on accident, which means I would make a guess that Christ is bidding for your soul this morning. Or is it that you struggle to trust God? Do you struggle to trust not only that he's in control, but trust that he's good? My encouragement would be to you this morning to be humble enough to lay yourself at the foot of Christ and know that he's working all things together for your good. If you love him, if you're a believer and you're following Jesus and you call yourself a Christian, mark my words, he is working it for your good even if you don't see it now. And so my encouragement would be to lay everything at the foot of the cross this morning. And then lastly, do you struggle with laying laying your life down for the sake of the kingdom? Have you spent a majority of your life building up your own kingdom, your own comforts and niceties. My encouragement to you would be that there's no way that you can, there's no way that you can go that's going to provide the kind of peace that you're looking for, the kind of joy that you're looking for. I promise. Psalm 16 tells us that it's in your presence that there's fullness of joy. And this is David, a king who has everything, a king who has armies, a king who has land, and a king who has property. And this is not a man that is lacking. But he says that it's in your presence that there's fullness of joy, not in those things. So my encouragement would be to look to the God who's given everything up for you and that you might give everything up for him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and being a disciple is not easy. We acknowledge that this morning. We acknowledge that dying to ourselves and trusting you and serving you is not without its difficulties. And so God, we ask that where it's difficult to trust, you would give us humility. Where it's difficult to die to ourselves, would you give us the courage And God, where it's difficult to call you Lord, we we pray that you would help us. And where we may be holding on to things in our life, God, we pray, I pray deeply that you would pry our fingers off whatever we're holding on to. 
whatever is an obstacle in the way of believing in the one true good king. God, I pray that you tear that obstacle down. God, that would be the most loving thing that you could do in our life because you are a good king, a good God who knows best for us. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the best thing we could ever have is you. So God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.